The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Maya Nicholson, Internet Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive from March 2nd, 2024. On February 14th, the White House confirmed that Russia is planning to develop a nuclear-armed, on-orbit anti-satellite weapon. For today's Archive episode, I chose an episode from May 26th, 2020. In the episode, Scott R. Anderson sat down with Timiebi Aganabagenti, Brian Israel, and Daniel Porras just before SpaceX and NASA's launch in 2020 to discuss the increased use of space for public, private, and national purposes, as well as the legal and policy challenges that arise in this new era of space exploration. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is The Lawfare Podcast for May 26, 2020. This coming Wednesday, NASA and the SpaceX Corporation are scheduled to send astronauts back into outer space from U.S. soil for the first time since the U.S. Space Shuttle program ended in 2011. The launch promises to kick off a new era in space exploration, one that will see the increased use of outer space for both public and private purposes, as well as greater involvement by private corporations and other unconventional actors in space exploration. To discuss the legal and policy challenges of this new era, I sat down with three lawyers working at the bleeding edge of space law and policy. Professor Timiebi Aganaba-Jinti of Arizona State University and the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law there. Brian Israel, a former public and private sector space lawyer who teaches space law at Berkeley Law. And Daniel Porras, who is currently a space security fellow at the UN Institute for Disarmament Research. It's the Lawfare Podcast for May 26th. The SpaceX launch and the future of So tomorrow we're going to be seeing a pretty significant step in the new direction of the U.S. space program in the form of this joint launch between SpaceX and NASA around the kind of Dragon module that SpaceX has been developing Daniel, can you start us off by giving us a a kind of description about the significance of this launch and why exactly it's a notable development and what it tells us about the direction that space travel and exploration is headed in? Sure. There's a a, a big nostalgia that's coming out right now with this launch in in large part because space exploration has been such a a big part of American culture since, uh, since space exploration began. Uh, The United States has always been a leader in, in space but we haven't launched anybody from American soil since 2011. 
back when the when the space shuttle program was retired. And so for years, the United States has been putting efforts into getting a new launch vehicle up and running. And to do this, they actually took a very different route from what we've seen in the past. In the early years, outer space was dominated by countries and countries had traditionally launched people people into space. Uh, we've seen companies launching satellites, um, but over the last decade, the, the majority of folks who have gone into space have come uh, have flown on Russian rockets or on the Soyuz. And so tomorrow, for the first time, or later today, we're going to be seeing people launching from Cape Canaveral, from the historic launch pad 39A, where the Saturn V rockets used to launch that took people to the moon. Um, SpaceX has really embraced a lot of the culture and tradition of NASA, and they have restored a lot of the um, a lot of the launch pads and some of the area, working areas that hadn't really been put into use since the since the space shuttle went out of went out of commission. So I think tomorrow a lot of folks are really feeling like the United States is getting back in the game, and and they're doing it with commercial actors. That's that's a, a lot of folks have seen that as a big risk, but Elon Musk and uh, SpaceX, his whole team, as well as other companies like Boeing and uh, Blue Origins and a number of other folks have really shown that uh, pri the private sector and the companies can do some pretty impressive stuff in space. So uh, this mission is going to be quite quite interesting. They're going to the space station. Where I don't think it's really clear how long they're going to be staying there, but. It's it's a first, uh, a big first, uh, not just for the United States, but for the whole world. So obviously, space travel and exploration entail a whole range of human behavior, not just by individuals, but perhaps more importantly, in many ways, from a sort of legal and policy perspective, by states. And now, as Daniel, you just described for us, also by corporations increasingly. And of course, in this sort of environment, the question is always, how do you govern this sort of conduct, particularly when there are common goods at stake and other issues that need to be regulated and managed, at least by some people's views, to make sure resources are allocated and so make sure there aren't accidents, things like that, that can arise when you have so many people acting independently in a kind of finite space. Brian, let me turn to you for this. Can you give us a sort of overview of the instruments and institutions that we have to govern these sorts of activities? What the sort of limits they put on, how they interact with these sorts of activities we saw, see NASA and SpaceX pursuing, and maybe where they might be lacking, where the this new era may require some additional steps that aren't already in place? Certainly. At the center of the international legal framework for space is the Outer Space Treaty, which was open for signature in 1967 and has more than 100 states parties. And the treaty is more constitutional than regulatory in nature, and that its broad, open-textured principles rarely supply a single crisp answer to the questions that have arisen over the past half century. Instead, the treaty shapes and constrains the universe of answers to each question, but it ultimately requires interested actors to come together within the treaty's legal framework to interpret and apply the treaty's principles or to supplement them. And this was by design. Had the framers of the treaty sought to regulate space activities half, half a century or a century later, based on our early 1960s understanding, we likely wouldn't be talking about it today. Now, as you note, a growing majority of space activities are carried out by private entities. And when I was at the State Department at the beginning of what's come to be called New Space, more than one space company executive proclaimed that this, as a private entity, they are not bound by the Outer Space Treaty. And while this is literally true, treaties bind their states' parties, uh, it is too clever by half. 
Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty provides that states are internationally responsible for national activities in outer space, whether governmental or non-governmental, and it imposes an affirmative duty on states' parties to require authorization of non-governmental space activities and to supervise them to ensure their conformity with the treaty. Article 6 of the treaty in the national legislation and regulatory frameworks uh, for commercial space activities that are enacted pursuant to it is how we achieve a cohesive regime for all actors in space, whether governmental or private, at least in theory. In practice, uh, deadlock in national legislatures, uh, both a lack of appetite uh, for assenting to new international regulatory frameworks and for national legislation implementing existing regulatory obligations has frustrated uh, many attempts to address newly contemplated space activities. So one thing that's definitely been noticeable in the last couple of years is the fact that the Trump administration has really taken an interest in outer space matters. Most recently on the civilian side in early April, we saw President Trump issue amidst the global pandemic that we're all still dealing with an executive order on international support for the recovery and use of space resources, kind of laid out a plan for building international cooperation for recovering resources from outer space, sort of exploiting outer space, uh, although not necessarily with the negative connotations that 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 can imply in certain contexts. Um, And also making clear, most notably, that the United States doesn't accept the Moon Treaty as an instrument reflecting customary international law, which is another international agreement I know that governs some of the space, at least from some people's view, uh, or might, although obviously the Trump administration doesn't feel that way. Timmy, let me ask you, does the Trump administration's views depart from its predecessors on space matters? Are we seeing them blaze a new direction or are they really continuing sort of longstanding U.S. policy and either are emphasizing parts of it for kind of public relations reasons or are simply, uh, you know, maybe more focused on it as a policy interest, but keeping legal policy, legal frameworks in place the way they have been for prior administrations? Yeah, thank you so much. That's a really, really interesting question. And I think that um, when you hear and when you see all the different narratives and discussions about the different governance regimes, it's it's really easy to think that there have either been, you know, new positions that are based on Trump or there have been age-old positions, but, but it's actually more nuanced than that. So essentially, I think this administration has worked pretty hard to clarify existing or previously um, areas that have been unclear. So for instance, um, this administration, particularly Scott Pace, who is the policy advisor to the president, has made it clear that terms like common heritage of mankind or space as a global public good, these kind of terminologies, or or the Moon Agreement as, as a possible customary international law, and not terms that the US actually abides by. But what you'll find is that if you look historically, um, there have been different perspectives of this. So a very controversial treaty, which the executive order stated that the U.S. categorically doesn't support, is the Moon Agreement. But if you look back historically, you'll see, according to Michael Listener, that the Moon Agreement was actually initially favored for ratification by the U.S. during the Carter administration. But then industry groups you know, generated a lot of concern um, with the members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And so ratification was then put on hold. 
when the Reagan administration now came, that derailed any future ratification. And for a long time, there was actually no official position that was taken about the validity of the Moon Agreement. And so you just had all these different speculations. And I think the executive order really stamped down, the US doesn't agree with the Moon Agreement. This is not going to be something that's going to become customary. And let's just kind of kill that moving forward. So the other terms, things like, for instance, to do with space resources, I think, again, this administration is just essentially trying to clarify many of the concepts that have already been to stop this kind of speculation or stop this going back and forth that we've been doing for decades. Let me ask you a quick follow-up on that, Timmy, actually. Can you describe us what is the controversy around the Moon Treaty versus other legal regimes? What is the significance of the Trump administration rejecting uh, the Moon Treaty as representing customary international law as it relates to this sort of new direction we see space exploration moving in? So I think before you ask anyone to answer this kind of question, it's really important to know their ideological and philosophical bent. So for me, I am British-born, Nigerian by origin, Canadian by choice, American by residence. All those perspectives really, really nuance the way I see this agreement. So from a very capitalistic American kind of perspective, the idea is that the Moon Agreement is actually a limitation because it seeks to call for international acceptance of space resources as common heritage of mankind, a resource that belongs to everyone. And therefore, the proceeds from that should be shared or distributed somehow. And the 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 idea, if you see a lot of American authors, it's been very, very fixated on this idea of giving developing countries something for nothing. So, you know, an American or someone puts in their hard work and then all of a sudden we have to give it away to Americans. That's the dichotomy that you always seem to hear. Now, as an African, I find that, you know, sometimes a bit difficult because when you look at the Moon Agreement, there's only one African country out of the 18 that are actually signatories or even, even ratified that, which is Morocco. Morocco, all the other countries, countries like France, Australia, Belgium, India, these countries are not African countries and these countries are not poor countries. And so there's always this idea that it's poor countries trying to get something for nothing. So there's that perspective. The other perspective is really that, you know, the Moon Agreement is basically saying that, you know, because this is a resource that does belong to everyone, we have to steward it properly and we have to figure out what kind of regime we need to establish to make this something feasible that everyone can benefit from. Now, I'm not a proponent of the Moon Agreement. I understand the controversies around it. And I think moving forward, it probably can serve as something interesting to look at, but maybe has too much historical baggage to be useful moving forward. And possibly this is the right time to think about what are the new kind of frameworks, what are the new kind of discussions instead of keeping all that ideological baggage around the Moon Agreement. Well, before we go to this question about new sort of approaches or new arrangements that might be needed for this phase of space exploration that we're entering into, I want to turn to the one other major development that uh, certainly has gotten the most public attention uh, from the Trump administration in regards to outer space, and that's the creation of a U.S. Space Force, a, a branch of the U.S. Armed Forces dedicated to operating in outer space, at least conceptually, although in practice, uh, presumably more in the future. Daniel, let me ask you, how notable a development is this really? Is this a major step the United States is taking in advance of other countries to an extent that's controversial? Does it have implications for how space is used for the 
concerns about militarization of outer space that have been part of our dialogue really throughout the the spacefaring era? Uh, Or has that gotten a little bit overplayed and again, been taken up because it's such a novel concept aesthetically uh, or conceptually, but in reality is kind of a natural evolution of where U.S. policy has been heading? Much like a lot of the things that I think this particular administration has done, uh, some of the biggest impacts that they have is not necessarily the content of what's being put out there, but rather the way that it is promoted and the way that it is put out in the public in the public sphere. The militarization of outer space, it began at the very beginning, in the very beginning of space exploration. From the moment Sputnik went up into space, the military was involved. So usually when we talk about the militarization of outer space, we're talking about militaries using satellites or space systems in order to uh, be a force multiplier, in order to better carry out their operations all over the world or at their borders or to collect intel, you know, some very limited activities, but not necessarily hostile activities. With the Space Force, what we ended up seeing is a, a continuation of something the U.S. was already doing. Uh, the U.S. is very active in space. They do a lot of, a lot of activities and a lot of military-related operations, but it really brought to the forefront some new terminology that hadn't really been used in the past. So if you look now at the, the actual mandates and the, the orders for, for what the Space Force is supposed to do, it's a lot of administrative stuff, things about acquisitions, things about training engineers to be able to handle satellites and space systems and switch frequencies and how to make sure that you're going to be able to keep certain space capabilities active, even in times of combat or when somebody is actively trying to interfere with your space systems. It doesn't necessarily involve Starship troopers being deployed in orbit. But the way that the the, uh, the Trump administration has really played up this notion of Space Force, it, it has kind of tapped into a little bit of that futuristic Star Wars mentality, that, uh, or at least the, the image that some people get. And so what, we, what we've noticed at the international level is that this is really a big indicator that we're starting to step into uh, what we refer to as an arms race in outer space, where militaries are very dependent on space systems. And so they're looking for ways to protect those, those vulnerabilities. But likewise, they're also saying, ah, we can also find weaknesses within the, the space systems and networks of our, of our rivals and opponents. So different types of counter space capabilities, which is like kind of space weapons are being developed. Some are located on the ground that can be fired off into space. Uh, some might be deployed in space at some point. It's very difficult to know what is a weapon in space in particular because all the technology that we have is it's dual use and multi-use. Civilians can use it and the military can use it. Likewise, you know, some things can be used to clean up trash in space and some things can be used to, to attack, physically attack other satellites. And so the big challenge that we're having now is that the Space Force was an indicator to other countries that, look, you need to have these types of forces and operation and uh, operational capabilities within your military. It's a fundamental part of the modern military package. The Russians already had more or less what is the equivalent of a Space Force, though it's not uh, a separate um, like a, a separate arm uh, division of the, of the military. Same for the, for the Chinese. But now we're seeing a lot of new actors uh, start to, to develop their own versions. So France has one, India has one now, Japan has just formed theirs. Um, a lot of countries are starting to change their policies 
to match these kinds of, of positions. One of the things that was quite surprising last year was that Italy adopted their own position on military space uh, and defense, and they used the word deterrence, which was quite surprising for a country like Italy that has never really expressed any interest in having the, the ability to interfere or, or to target space systems. So the danger for, for things like commercial development in space is that we could see a conflict that involves potentially the destruction of space objects or the widespread uh, interference with space objects. And, and that could really inhibit our ability to use low Earth orbit, geosynchronous orbit for any purposes, let alone for commercial ones. Well, you mentioned this word deterrence, and that really brings up one of the other notable developments that's happened around the outer space, uh, although I don't think it's gotten quite as much attention as overshadowed a little bit, which is you did see the Trump administration in its nuclear posture review maybe about two years ago now, a little less than two years ago, if I recall, laying out this idea of cross-domain deterrence. And it got a lot of attention at the time because it talks about nuclear deterrence in relation to uh, cyberspace and warfare using you know, computers and things like that. But it also talks about outer space as being part of that same multi-domain, cross-domain deterrence. And that brings up this whole question about nuclearization of outer space, the use of nuclear weapons, the use of nuclear technology, even for more civilian purposes. Is that another aspect of these militarization concerns that's kind of being brought to the fore uh, about deployment of these sorts of weapon systems uh, that may not be directly implicated by Space Force? And is this something that, as we've seen, the move away from non-proliferation agreements like the INF Treaty and Open Skies Treaty more recently, as we've seen this threat of uh, escalation of the arms race, is that something that there's a risk about moving into outer space and resurrecting some of those outer space arms races that uh, were such a concern in certainly the 70s and 80s in the Cold War? The short answer is yes, we are. We're definitely heading back to that. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, all modern militaries really rely quite a lot on, on space systems. And one of the things that we're, we're seeing now is space capabilities are having an impact on, on, on arms racing in general. So uh, a great example, you mentioned the Missile Defense Review. In that review, they also talk about uh, bringing back the idea of having space-based missile defense. Now, that comes in two categories. First, there's the very doable and potentially quite uh, destabilizing idea of putting space-based sensors in orbit. So that would be you know, just having satellites that would be able to detect missiles being launched, you know, ICBMs being launched in other continents at a much earlier stage. Now, that's great for the Americans, but the problem is, in a, in a way, we're sort of stuck in a nuclear Mexican standoff. I don't know if that's a terribly proper term, but that's at least the one they use in the movies, where everyone's essentially got their nuclear weapons pointed at each other, or at least in the, within the, the, the big major military rivals. So China, Russia, and the United States all keep the peace because they know that if one, one person pulls the trigger, we could all end up dead. But if you start building shields for yourself, then it, it actually encourages your rivals to then go look for other ways to undercut your shield. So that maintains a certain level of stability. As the United States starts talking about changing their military, their missile defense posture from not just focusing on countries like Iran and, and North Korea, but also trying to intercept missiles that are coming from China and, and Russia. Well, what that says to, to them is, look, we don't, we're not looking for strategic stability. We're looking for strategic superiority. 
And we want to be able to make sure that if you shoot at us, we'll be able to defend ourselves and, and to take you out. Well, what that also has done is that one, it kind of gives an incentive to the Russians and the Chinese maybe to use it or lose it because if they don't uh, get into a nuclear exchange early on, then later on it might not be useful anymore. And two, it also gives them an incentive to keep anti-satellite weapons. If they're concerned that there's going to be a missile defense shield in space, then in order for them to maintain parity, they're going to have to have the ability to take those uh, to take those objects down. And so one of the things that we've been discussing in the United Nations quite a lot is how to include space systems and, and satellites and anti-satellite weapons in broader arms control discussions so that we can maybe find some agreements to to limit the development of certain types of weapons or at least limit the interference with certain types of satellites. Uh, you mentioned earlier that we are stepping away from arms control in general. It's very unlikely that the New START agreement between the U.S. and Russia will be renewed, which is the, uh, the agreement that currently keeps caps on uh, the, the number of strategic weapons that they can, they can all keep. The big problem for space there, though, is that it's one of the last provisions that explicitly prohibits interference with national technical means of verification, which is like satellites keeping an eye on the number of weapons that the other, that the other guy has. There, there's an agreement right now, an explicit agreement not to mess with those satellites. And if New START goes out, then um, that's one of the last explicit protections for those types of satellites. So we start to ask ourselves, will we start seeing more instances of interference with national technical means of verification? And, and not only between the, the Americans and the Russians, but will other countries start engaging in that kind of uh, interference as well? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Brian, we have talked about this whole array of activities that are taking place in outer space, or if they're not taking place yet, we're on the verge of them potentially taking place in the near future. And here on Earth, in regards to terrestrial activities, we have a kind of school of law that has built up to govern about how states interact with you know, territorial expansion and demarcation, with resource exploitation, with exploration. And those are essentially the rules of customary international law, or in some cases, treaty regimes that have built up over the last several centuries, governing state behavior, not always with crystal clarity, but at least giving some broad rules of the road in a lot of these cases. How do those sorts of rules translate to a new domain like 
outer space. Uh, I think anyone who's spent time reading science fiction and may recall when in the Expanse series or in The Martian, uh, or I think in the Hyperion Cantos, if anybody's really digging deep, you know, there are places where the author's plays with maritime law and says, oh, yes, this is the legal conclusion of this space because it's drawn from old maritime law uh, principles, which is a, a kind of species of customary international law, at least many aspects of it. You know, how does that does that actually work? Or, or are we talking about a whole new domain where there are state practices still just beginning to accumulate? Uh, and if so, what is the method for developing rules to govern this terrain among states and now among, you know, the entities regulated by states like private corporations? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty provides that uh, international law, including the Charter of the United Nations, uh, applies in, in the space domain. Uh, but that doesn't, you know, tell us a whole lot when we get down to, you know, a, a particular question in, in, in many cases. So the, the regimes you mentioned, Scott, all derive to a certain extent from sovereignty over land, rules for acquiring sovereignty over land territory, rules about exercising sovereignty over land and delineating how far uh, your sovereign rights extend from your land mass uh, into the maritime domain, into, into airspace, delimiting boundaries with your neighbors. The first principle of space law really that territorial sovereignty does not extend into outer space, really limits uh, the utility of these terrestrial solutions, at least mechanically, as ready-made solutions. Much of the rest of what's in the Outer Space Treaty after sort of settling the issue of territorial sovereignty does not extend into space is, well, then then what? How do uh, governments regulate um, and coordinate activities in the space domain on a different sort of jurisdictional basis, usually based on on nationality of, of the actor? Now, there's a, a natural tendency of, of Earthlings uh, to want to replicate uh, what we know uh, terrestrially. And, and so by analogy, some of what we've been doing terrestrially uh, m- might be quite valuable as analogy, but I think we need to be mindful of the limits of those analogies, that, that, that the legal underpinnings will need to be different, uh, because when you take away the sort of foundation of a territorial sovereign, you have to, you have to come up with, with different workarounds. We have at least hypothetically, resource exploration and exploitation in areas beyond uh, national jurisdiction uh, in the deep seabed. Uh, and so there are natural, there's a natural tendency to look to the experience with the seabed regime uh, under uh, Part 11 of, of the Law of the Sea Convention. And al- although, as Jimmy noted, there's, there's some political allergies there that uh, limit that as, as sort of a, a, a ready-made uh, solution for, for translation to space. Well, Brian, let me push you on this question a little bit more, because I'm really curious about the methodologies. I know you are someone who, as a former State Department lawyer like I am, and other folks have really wrestled with this more mechanically than other folks have, is this question of how do you take the elements of customary national law that we often look to that that governs at least this kind of a first principles way a lot of this, which is premised upon A, state practice, and B, opinio juris, the kind of uh, understanding that there is a sense of legal obligation that adheres to certain trends in state practice or patterns of state practice, and, and extend that when, you, when you're reaching into a do, new domain like this. Is the baseline assumption that the simple distinction of the lack of the territorial base 
is enough to say that these rules don't extend easily or to, or to make a presumption that they don't extend? Or is it more of an exercise about saying what is the relevant distinctions versus the obvious distinction here? Maybe the fact that certain, certain types of rules are in outer space versus on the open seas isn't super relevant if you're talking about things like maybe taking scrap <laughs> or what do you do with materials that somebody may have recovered from a lost vessel, either on the open seas or in outer space. As an example, maybe the rules are different for that. I don't know. But just methodologically, it's just a fascinating question to me. How do you really think about those sorts of parallels and the extent to which they do and they don't apply, particularly from the customer international law perspective? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a great question. Uh, it's rarely easy, uh, and I think the, the the question in all cases is: Have states, as as always with customary international law, have they consented or acquiesced to a rule, or or if it's if, if it's a rule predating uh, human activities in the space domain, have they sort of assented, acquiesced uh, to its applicability uh, to the space domain? And so, you know. One example where I think the terrestrial rule uh, is regarded as applicable in the space domain um, are the rules in the UN Charter uh, that are embodied in you know, Article 2.4 and 51 about the use of force and self-defense uh, that are also uh, recognized to, to exist be sort of behind those conventional rules as customary international law. I think a great many states recognize the applicability of those, of, of those rules, although beyond that, uh, what constitutes an armed attack on, on a space object gets pretty granular pretty fast. Um, but but I, I think that's also the, the, the case uh, terrestrially. I think where it gets trickier is where there are claims that, um, say, a, a, a principle of international environmental law applies uh, sort of wholesale to the space domain. And I think those kind of claims often run into sort of legal doctrinal challenges, both of, of, about, we'll have, can, can we point to evidence of, of states acquiescing uh, or, or sort of ordering their fares in, around sort of space activities, uh, according to that uh, principle of international environmental law? And, and then also conceptually, uh, where humankind's relationship with the space environment and celestial bodies uh, is different, at least so far, uh, than our relationship with our home planet um, of Earth. Uh, and so you would expect, say, sort of the balancing of interests uh, that we find in terrestrial environmental law and in international environmental law to be struck differently. Uh, and I, I, I do see these evolving uh, as uh, Earthlings' relationship with celestial bodies evolves. In the Outer Space Treaty, in Article 9, which is a, a, a very densely packed article with, with lots of different principles in it, but there's an obligation to conduct the exploration of celestial bodies so as to avoid their harmful contamination. The way that that has been primarily implemented to date by the relatively few actors who visit celestial bodies uh, has been through what's called planetary protection, uh, which is primarily, the primary interest is um, avoiding contamination of science, avoiding sort of introducing terrestrial biological matter to celestial bodies that would create false positives uh, in the search for you know, life on, on, on other planets. And so our relationship with celestial bodies to date has largely been as uh, scientific specimens to be sampled uh, that can help you know, unlock uh, secrets about you know, the origins of the solar system and, and, and life throughout it. We can foresee, especially if you read enough science fiction as you do, Scott, our relationship with celestial bodies evolving. 
to be, you know, a, a medium for exploration and, you know, provide in situ resources for sort of further onward exploration to even home uh, for, for, for some number, number of settlers. And you can imagine uh, the necessity of evolving our approach to environmental protection away from don't introduce anything into the environment to rational use to, you know, make use of resources without disproportionately, you know, gumming up the environment. And th the broad principles of the outer, outer space treaty, like Article 9, you know, provide a lot of room for that sort of evolution of our approach. But the, the, the sort of approach that I've, I've laid out uh, doesn't involve sort of the straight plug and play application of, say, um, principles of international environmental law terrestrially into the the space domain, uh, it's more reasoning by analogy. If I could just follow up on something that, that Brian just mentioned that is, is really spot on and is very endemic throughout all the discussions related to international law and, and outer space activities at the moment, and that is we don't necessarily know how to apply the laws we have down here up there. So Article 2.4 and Article 51 of the UN Charter are perfect examples. We very often hear a lot of countries say, there's gaps in the law. There's gaps in the law. We, we need additional rules in order to fill in the gaps. But we also don't necessarily know how to, how to apply the rules that already exist. So perhaps one of the things that we, we really need, one of the steps that we should be taking before we start maybe trying to come up with new rules and new treaties is that we should just figure out how some of these, how we want to apply some of these concepts that are, are very well established here on Earth up in this new environment of, of outer space. Well, Timmy, let me turn to you and ask you about, I think, one of the interesting recent examples of something that looks like lawmaking or maybe more norm-making, as I don't think it's necessarily legally binding under international law or, or domestic law, which is this idea of the Artemis Accords, which, as I understand it, although please correct me if I have this wrong, is essentially a set of principles that uh, NASA has rolled out requiring partners in its Artemis project, which is uh, the effort to return to the moon in, by 2024 uh, and to start expanding lunar exploration efforts to invite foreign partners into that program, but in line with these accords, which kind of lays out a couple baseline principles about uh, lunar exploration and space exploration. What should we be making of this sort of project? Is this a move away from lawmaking towards norm making in a way that is meant to maintain legal flexibility? Or is it really the beginnings of a, a effort to establish clear rules of the road that may eventually become state practice and international law rules that might govern it in a more binding way? Uh, and how has it been received? How effective has it been from that sort of perspective? First of all, to nuance it a little bit, I would say that this is kind of like the principles approach to the International Space Station Agreement. So, for instance, the International Space Station, you know, there's specific partners, there's a specific regime that was established, you know, to, to govern the relationship between those actors. But it didn't seem to have, well, I don't know, I don't, I wasn't into space at that time, but these accords seem to be bigger than that. Like we're saying, does this represent international law generally? What we have to remember is this is a principled approach to, to specific people who are doing a specific agreement. What it does do, though, is have the potential to tell us about what state practice could look like, because not only do these accords um, basically set by some principles which 
are already reiterate pre-existing norms of space law. But there are some progressive elements that when those are actually given shape and meaning through the negotiated agreements between NASA and its partners will really tell us a lot of interesting things. So, for instance, the pre-existing norms of space law that those principles already reiterate are things like space should be used for peaceful purposes, we should have a right of access to resources, there should be emergency assistance, you should register space objects and release scientific data. Those things are already in existing treaties. But there are some really interesting innovations like interoperability, protection of lunar heritage, obligations about addressing debris and spacecraft disposal. And the one that I'm really watching closely is the section on the deconfliction of activities. So I think what's really interesting about this is that Brian just talked about Article 9. Article 9 is where we talk about due regard to the corresponding interests of other states. And we talk about you need notification and consultation, you know, to ensure that harmful interference doesn't occur. But we've always had problems with this because we never really understood what does this Article 9 obligation mean? And here through the Artemis Accords, where they talk about deconfliction of activities, they're talking about due regard from the perspective of having safety zones. So I'm really, really going to be watching what is a safety zone? How do we use safety zones to prevent, you know, to prevent harmful interference? What does that actually mean? And so I'm really particularly interested about looking at how that evolves. So from my takeaway from this conversation, to my kind of layman's ears, it, it sounds like we're really looking at uh, the beginning of, or maybe even at this point, later than the beginning of, kind of begin, moving towards the middle of, an era where we're seeing a shift towards more and more activities that we associate with the terrestrial sphere actually moving to outer space in a way that's always been kind of hypothesized before, but hasn't always been reality. But we're talking about resource exploitation. We're talking about more actual civilian and private sectors and actors being involved. We're talking about greater military activity. A lot of these things that are very common on the ground, but now taking place in our space under a different set of rules. For you all, I'd like to get each of your kind of perspectives on this. What is the big question or issue that this raises from a legal and policy perspective? What is the thing from your perspective that we should all be looking at, whether we are the United States or we as the broader international community, to say that this is the real or at least one of the big real challenges that we're going to face moving forward into this era and that we need to start thinking about how we're going to tackle now? Why don't we start with you, Daniel? I think for me at the moment, the a really big question is, are we going alone or are we going together? One of the things that we've been seeing from, from a number of countries, especially some of the bigger space powers, is that they, they have the resources to, to go ahead and, and carry out their activities the way that they, that they want. And, and at least in the, most of the discussions at, at the multilateral level related to outer space activities, you know, those countries have really driven the conversation and driven the options that are out there for, for what is feasible and what is not feasible in, in terms of rulemaking for space. But we, we constantly see these, two, these divisions between uh, what might be considered like a very Western view of how space activities should be done, and then the rest of the world's view of how outer space activities should be carried out. And, and it's, it's not easy to, to parcel that out. On the one hand, people get really excited when companies like SpaceX launch people from the famous Launchpad 39A. People get really excited when they hear about 
going to the moon and setting up space stations. Likewise, they also get very nervous and it, it raises some, some concerns. Also, it, it's a point of pride. Space is seen as one of the, the big stages where countries can really show off their, their national potency. So uh, I think we, we all need to have a, a bit of a think about how we see space, how we see our activities going forward in the future, and, and really consider what the implications are of whatever choices we make. I definitely encourage lunar mining and, and exploration to a, to a huge degree, but I also think it's very important to remember a lot of the, the other countries that are coming up and are just now becoming space actors. We're going to need to work together, for example, on things like space traffic management, you know, traffic rules for satellites that were, are going to be needed in orbit. And in order to have the cooperation on, on some of those smaller issues, you might need to, to temper your, some of your uh, uh, endeavors in other areas. So we'll see. But I, I definitely think space is a very exciting area now. And it, it's been fantastic to see outer space getting so much attention over the last couple of years. Timmy, why don't we go to you next? So for me, I think what's really, really important is confidence building when we're talking about partnerships moving forward. We've just heard um, Daniel's point about going alone and going together. Now, my thoughts about the nuts and bolts of partnership and how we actually do that, particularly with different actors of diverging capacity, is comes from the fact that my first job was in legal affairs and international cooperation for an African space agency. And what's fascinating about that, you know, being involved in partnerships at that level is that you see the issues of mistrust, historical issues, right? Um, you know, of, of trying to find who are the right kind of international partners. How do you guys have a meeting of the minds about where you all want to go in future? And, and part of the work of my lab at the, the Space Governance Lab at Arizona State University is is really trying to create this environment whereby we have an area of trust where people's intentions can be clearly stated to ensure that the right kind of principles of partnerships move forward. Now, I've heard horror stories from developing countries about, you know, in their capacity building programs, whereby, you know, contract terms say things like, you're not allowed to do any improvements on the capacity building stuff, you're not allowed to have external consultants, and all these things which really hold countries back in their ability to develop their programs. So what we really need to think of now is when you say we need to go together, how does that actually work in a concrete, you know, nuts and bolts perspective when you have people of different varying capacities that you're trying to all move together? So I always say we need to take a stepping stone approach, right? We understand that people are coming at different levels, but how do we actually facilitate that? That's what I'm really interested in. And moving forward, I really want to try and create that kind of environment where we can test out different ways of, of people actually being able to cooperate and collaborate. Brian, why don't we give you the closing thought? Oh, what a what an incredible burden. I I, I feel strongly that the, the the future in of the vibrant future of space activities that we envision, that, that I think many of us desire, will require us to to further develop cohesive international regimes. I, 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 I say that in plural, probably specific to, you know, say the lunar surface or, or, or even parts of the moon. And, and by cohesive, I mean all actors uh, are rowing in the same direction, um, sort of operating according to, you know, common expectations, standards, 
and, and the like. Space is big, uh, that is true, but uh, we Earthlings uh, have tended to cluster, say, satellites in Earth orbit in a relatively finite uh, number of slots that are very useful for uh, providing the services on Earth that we uh, enjoy and largely take for granted. And as, as a result of that, it's, you know, Earth orbit, particularly low Earth orbit, is becoming congested at, at an alarming rate where the, where the imperative uh, for a regime uh, particularly for uh, collision avoidance, will, will, will only grow. I think if, if we look to the contemplated uh, activities on the lunar surface, we'll see that while you know, the, the moon is also quite large relative to the number of, of actors on the near term, the uh, spots that are most favorable for early lunar operations are relatively finite. And so there too, uh, there is a value and a parity even uh, for a common set of expectations for, for those uh, for those actors there. Uh, having spent most of my career as a diplomat lawyer uh, trying to build out international regimes from the top down is, is, is in sort of negotiating these rules on the international plane with the idea that they are made applicable to non-governmental actors through national legislation and regulation. I have a lot of concerns about whether that approach will, will scale to the present uh, number and diversity of actors, particularly given uh, the deadlocks we're seeing in in a lot of national legislatures, and so I'm personally very interested in exploring means mechanisms for the operators themselves uh, to supplement the more sort of regulatory ap- approaches, the sort of state led approach, with more contractual sort of private law alternatives to to fill in uh, some of the gaps and to get uh, an understanding be- between the operators uh, that will allow these these activities to to proceed and flourish. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today, but I can't thank you all enough for joining us here. I know that I'm going to be watching tomorrow's launch uh, with uh, you know, an eye towards this challenges posed by this new era of space exploration that it's helping to open up. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you haven't yet, Please share our podcast on Twitter or Facebook and leave us a rating or review wherever you found us. And be sure to visit www.thelawfarestore.com for all of your lawfare swag needs. This podcast was produced by Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Patcha Howell. And our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.